This is Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elsis. Alison Hurd is out this week, but she will take us to visit the bouquinistes of Paris, the booksellers along the River Seine, who are finding themselves selling tourist trinkets in order to stay in business. They've moved forward in their attempt to join the UNESCO list of intangible cultural heritage in the hopes that it can help. We also have an interview about cheese and the importance of a name, with small farmers and industrial producers going head-to-head -head over labeling and why that matters. But first, this is the month of May, and it starts with May 1st, International Workers' Day, which is a holiday here in France and is usually celebrated by marches led by trade unions. This year, with the Yellow Vest movement in its fifth month, the march took on a more political, say, yellow tinge. 165,000 people took to the streets throughout France on Wednesday, 28,000 in Paris, according to the Interior Ministry. Leading up to May 1st, the government warned of violence. They said radical elements would be infiltrating the marches. Thousands of police were deployed along the route in Paris. Despite the warnings, or some might say because of the precautions, the day itself was relatively peaceful. Though in Paris, the air was full of tear gas with a police force that some demonstrators say were overly aggressive. An event at the end crystallized the standoff between the government and the demonstrators. A group of demonstrators entered a hospital at the end of the march. Immediately, the interior minister, Christophe Castaner, called it an attack. Des gens ont attaqué un hôpital. People attacked a hospital, he said. Nurses had to protect an intensive care unit, and security forces had to come to their aid. But it emerged from eyewitnesses and video recordings that the people had gone there to take refuge away from the tear gas and police charging and the demonstration outside the hospital. The demonstrators had tried to enter an intensive care unit, but when nurses told them not to enter, they didn't. As this witness said, they weren't aggressive. There was no animosity. The demonstrators didn't fight back. She says what she saw didn't match what was being reported on the news. It wasn't an attack, but people who were scared of police who were chasing them. Now the government's under fire for its spin on the incident. The Yellow Vests say they will be out again on Saturday for around 25 of their weekly demonstrations. And a move away from politics, sort of. This week, the French National Academy of Medicine warned that alcohol consumption has stopped going down in France for the first time since the Second World War. What this means in terms of people's habits is up for speculation, but the Academy says this is a problem for public health. It's called on authorities to fight harder against the negative health effects of alcohol, and it singled out what it says is an outsized influence of the alcohol lobby. Now, that lobby, of course, is mostly representatives of wine producers. And the idea of encouraging less consumption is, of course, problematic here in this country where the industry brings in billions of euros a year and employs tens of thousands of people. The health ministry has recognized the need for measures like limiting advertising and better labeling, but the implementations have been held up. And no wonder. Last year, the president himself famously bragged about drinking wine for lunch and for dinner. He pledged not to impose more regulations on alcohol. Alcohol is the leading cause of death for those 15 to 30 years old in France and is responsible for about 40,000 deaths each year. Also this week, the marking of an anniversary, which brings us to our regular look back at history.
500 years ago, on May 2nd, 1519, Leonardo da Vinci died here in France at the Chateau d'Amboise in the Loire Valley. He was there as the first painter and first engineer of King Francis I. The French and Italian presidents marked the anniversary on Thursday with a visit to the castle where da Vinci's buried. Da Vinci ended up in France just three years before his death, in 1516, when he entered the service of the young king. Francis I was 25 years old at the time. Legend has it that da Vinci, who was 64, crossed the Alps on a donkey, carrying parchments and drawings, and three famous masterpieces, including the Mona Lisa. He was set up at the Clos Lucé, a manor near the Amboise Castle, where he found a certain artistic freedom. He finished masterpieces, he worked on engineering and architecture projects, including drawings that may have inspired Chambord, the biggest Renaissance castle in the world. It's about 50 kilometers up the Loire River from Amboise. 500 years after his death, the anniversary is celebrated as a mark of Franco-Italian friendship, though that's been strained with the populist Italian governments questioning the loan of da Vinci paintings for a big retrospective at the Louvre later this year. In Italy, a wave of nationalism has meant that some are even saying that the Mona Lisa belongs in Italy. Discussions over all of this are ongoing diplomatically. The Louvre did agree to have its show in October to allow Italy to benefit from the actual anniversary this spring. This hasn't been a good week for Paris Saint-Germain, Paris's football team. Last weekend, the team dramatically lost the final of the French Cup. This week, it saw defeat at Montpellier. PSG fans are, of course, not happy, but there are others reveling in their woes. This is the team, remember, that acquired the world's most expensive football player, Neymar. Qatar, the team's owners, have been hoping to turn Les Bleus into a jewel of international football. And for more on how that's been going, I spoke to our resident sports expert, Paul Myers. Everybody is rejoicing in the demise of Paris Saint-Germain. And I say demise this is a team which has just won the French title. They've got five out of the last six. They are completely dominant. And yet everybody's saying they're This melting. is a failure, yeah. yeah. And the failure idea comes from the fact that Unai Emery was replaced. His contract wasn't renewed because it, he was deemed a failure after only reaching the last 16 of the UEFA Champions League last season. But in that season, in his last full term as PSG boss, he won the Ligue 1 title, he won the Coupe de France, and he won the League Cup. The replacement, Thomas Tuchel, has come in. He's only just got the Ligue 1 championship. So effectively, they're going backwards. So what's happening then? I mean, PSG, we've heard about these very expensive players, this building up of this team. You know, what's, what's wrong? Well, that's what they're trying to find out. Is it in the DNA of this group? That's the key, because it's not the salaries that the players are being offered. They have Neymar, the world's most expensive footballer, 222 million euros. They have Kylian Mbappe, France international striker, touted as one of the next big things in world football. One of the top scorers in the French League in the 2018-2019 season. They have Edinson Cavani, Uruguay international striker. Angel Di Maria, Argentine international. So a wealth, uh, the a wealth, wealth of, of talent. talent. I mean, there. their front line is something like 600 million euros worth of. <laughs> prime attacking prime product. attacking product but it's not working so what does this tell us i mean is this a a problem of psg is this a problem of just the game of football i think it's telling us all that you can pump lots of money into getting the best players but if you don't have the spirit within that group and someone who can foster that spirit such as the manager or even perhaps the supporters 
you won't be able to ally that talent to what happens on the pitch because, of course, you have to run on the pitch. And if you've got 11 players who don't want to run, then the other team, they might not be as technically brilliant, but if they've got the heart, they will usually win. Yes, you can buy in the best players, but if you don't give them an attitude when they do come in, that's almost money wasted. Um, you will get titles, yes, but will you be able to create the brand, which is what PSG want at the moment? They want a brand which is international, which sings glory. The brand, of course, brought forward not as PSG is owned by Qatar. Uh, yeah. So this is a whole other element here. This is almost not anything to do with France, not anything to do with sport to some extent. It's soft power. And how can we promote our country? Paris didn't really have, well, it's had the football team, but it hasn't had a football team which has had so much energy pumped into it. Now PSG has this kind of allure. However, they want to be there on the European stage. At the moment, in the UEFA Champions League semi-finals, you have Liverpool, you have Barcelona, you have Tottenham Hotspur, and you have Ajax. These are teams, they have an identity. Maybe it's been lost, but they can look back and say, yep, yeah, we've had that, and they can try and recreate that. PSG don't have that identity to look back onto, but they do have the future, and that's what they're trying to create. But if you do it in a hurry, it sometimes doesn't work. So French football fans, there's, uh, you know, they're looking at <laughs> PSG and shaking their heads, but, you know, if you're not a PSG fan, perhaps this is great. Yeah, I think you, you look at it and say, that is everything which is wrong with football, and that is everything which is right with football, that you can spend billions and not win. And then when you don't spend that much money, you can get to the latter stages of a major competition. Thanks there to Paul Myers. And now for some cheese. Now, I know we've promised you to go beyond the baguette in this podcast, beyond the obvious of what you might think of France. And I promise that this is a story that does that. Cheese is emblematic of this country, along with a baguette and a glass of wine. It's a key part of French gastronomy. And of course, it's big business with hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of cheese from all regions of the country. And it's easy to get lost, which is why since the early 20th century, France introduced certifications. AOC, the Controlled Origin Appellation. Today it's renamed on a European level as AOP, the Protected Origin Appellation. This applies to cheese, but also all kinds of food products like wine, guaranteeing they're made in a certain way, in certain areas, using certain traditional methods. But those ways and means are up for debate. And as cheese has become industrialized and exported globally, a change makes all the difference. The current fight over Camembert, France's most popular cheese made in Normandy, brings this into sharp relief. To make an AOP Camembert today, you have to use raw milk, but it could be from anywhere. New rules to be introduced next year would remove the raw milk requirement, though it would require a certain percentage of the milk to come from local cows in Normandy. Defenders of raw milk cheese say this will destroy the unique flavor of the cheese, and allowing the use of pasteurized milk would diminish the AOC label. What's in a name? Why does it matter? I asked this of Frédéric Blanchard, the president of the National Association of Farmhouse Milk Products and a cheese producer himself. One of the big things in names of French cheeses is this AOP, this origin label. First of all, are your, are your cheeses AOP? 
No, no, they aren't. Because I'm not in a zone where I can make AOP and I'm preferring to make my own cheese. So I'm selling the cheese on my farm. What's important about AOP in general for French cheeses? At the beginning, I think they were really the way of producing cheese, the traditional way of producing something. They said in order to be called a Conte, you need to have these cows in this place and this way of making it. Yeah, yeah. And they were at the beginning really, really ahead for the defense of raw milk. They were really on that idea to develop some special taste in the cheese and uh, I think they are still doing this work. Over the years that's it's changed a bit with industrialization with with exporting issues you know what where's AOP today? Some of them are still very fine even if they are getting bigger I can think about I like very much Conté for example and I think this is a really interesting product. Conté is of course a hard cow cheese from the Jura region yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the AOP there you say is still pretty strong. Yeah, and they are very well organized and are still trying to keep the real interest of their cheese. And at the opposite, we can talk about Camembert. They have tried to protect the kind of product that they are making, but then uh, many industrials get involved in this OP. Because Camembert is one of the most popular cheeses in France, and so there's a big discussion about allowing pasteurized milk into the Camembert production. Now they are trying to allow pasteurized milk, and this is a big problem to me, because the industry gets interested to get this label of Camembert, and at the beginning they were trying to, to make the cheese, the raw milk cheese, the real Camembert, but it is complicated for them to deal with the raw milk because when you are dealing with raw milk, you must uh, process the milk really quickly. And this is not easy when you are dealing with big volume of milk. Because you're collecting it from different producers and yeah. then you're producing it in a different place. And That's it. And then it's complicated for them. So once they got very strong in the LP, they tried to change the way you produce the cheese in the LP. And, for example, they try to stop the raw milk in the LP. And to me, this is really a changing of ID of the cheese. Because to me, you cannot make a real cheese without raw milk. But, but what's interesting about Camembert is that part of the discussion of allowing pasteurized milk is to say, well, we're also going to require more local milk before Camembert could be made with milk from anywhere. Now there's going to be a certain percentage of milk from Normandy. Where's the interplay there between local product and raw milk? The local production is important in the way of producing the cheese, but the raw milk is even more important. So they are trying to protect something, but they are destroying something more important. And uh, this can happen because they are trying to deal with bigger volumes. They're trying to export camembert and to, to make more, more, and more camembert. And if you want to make a good product, you must stop to a point that you, you can control it. How do you reconcile that difference between, say, making very local farmhouse cheese and a need or an interest in exporting globally? That's a a question of the regulation. The problem that many cheese are getting exported, that's why they are negotiating between countries very strict definition of a legal limit from some bacteria. And we don't, we are not so interested a farmhouse cheese maker to export cheese because I don't have much cheese to, <laughs> to sell. So I can sell it very close to my farm and I don't have to export. You don't need the new customers. No. And if we look at the European regulation, 
we can see that we still have place to exist and to survive because the European regulation is not so strict. Mainly it gives a responsibility to the producers to control the way he's processing his milk and his cheese. The limits are not so strict. Are you saying then that there is seems to be room in this world, in this regulatory space, yeah. for both an industrialized, standardized procedure, but mm. also a smaller artisanal farming cheese process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a big space for us. But the main concern, I think, is that we must avoid to get spoiled with our specific label. Now the, some part of the industry are trying to get the labels in their interest, in their marketing interest. And that's a problem, for example, for Fromage Fermier in France. Some big industries are getting the name of Fromage Fermier, even if they are producing a lot, a lot. And that's a problem for us. Because they will sell the cheese with the same label, with the same name as us, but with a bigger volume. As they always do, they will standardize the product but it will still be farmer's cheese. The question is, if they get a low standard for the farmer's cheese, for example, then they will spoil our image. And so it's a constant chase after the label. Yeah. The labels are very important, but I think if the consumer was really educated, he could make the difference between these different kinds of cheese. How does a consumer get educated on this? Well, that's the question. When we are really farmhouse producers, we are uh, selling a lot of our cheese directly in our farm. So we are in direct contact with the consumers and we can explain them what we are processing, what we are doing. But if you are selling in supermarkets, then you need a name. The consumer needs to identify the product and we must fight about this name. Is AOP, does it still have relevance? You said Conte, obviously it's, it's a strong one, but you know, are we moving into different kinds of labels and different names? AOP is really a good concept, a good idea, a good traditional way of making. This is a question of history too. All those products we are talking about, Saint-Nectaire, Conte, Roblochon, they have a traditional history. And this is important too in the product. But then, if you're trying to change just to simplify the process, then you are destroying something. And this is not so easy to understand what you are destroying, but then many, some years later, you will understand it because you have lost it. That was cheese producer and president of the National Association of Farmhouse Milk Products, Frédéric Blanchard. If you've been looking at photos of Notre Dame lately, you probably have, you zoom out and you may see that the banks of the River Seine are lined with green boxes. These are the bouquinis. There are about 220 of them. They're booksellers who sell secondhand, sometimes rare books, in a tradition that goes back four centuries. But with changing reading habits, the rise of the internet, book sales are down, and a growing number of bouquinis have turned to selling trinkets to tourists to stay in business. A group of them launched a campaign last year to get bouquinis on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list to try to preserve the tradition of the trade. They recently got approval from the French Ministry of Culture, which is the last step before UNESCO makes its final decision later this year. Alison Hurd met the man behind the move, Jérôme Kelly. It's been described as the biggest open-air bookshop in the world. On a three-kilometer stretch on both sides of the Seine River, around a third of a million second-hand books are displayed in traditional green wooden boxes. The booksellers are known as bouquinistes, and the tradition began four centuries ago when hawkers would try and make a few francs selling second-hand books. 
Over time, they became a go-to source for out-of-print or rare publications. During the French Revolution, bouquinists salvaged books from raids on aristocrats' libraries, and when Paris was occupied by the Nazis, they hid material about the resistance. They've survived floods and censorship, and have become a romantic symbol of literary Paris and a pull for book lovers and tourists the world over. C'est le, le charme du bouquiniste, c'est-à-dire qu'on ne s'arrête pas devant les boîtes vertes pour chercher quelque chose. You don't stop in front of these green boxes to look for something, but to discover something, says this customer who turns out to be a literary critic for a well-known French newspaper. You can find a first edition with a number line at a reasonable price, and that's what makes bouquinis so charming. It's a cliché. But they are the soul of Paris. But faced with competition from online dealers, some bouquinistes are selling more and more tourist trinkets. That's not forbidden, but it is tightly regulated by Paris City Hall, who provides them with space to set up their stores free of charge. But of the four boxes that each seller has, three must contain books, and the fourth can sell items like prints, postcards, and souvenirs. Jérôme Calais is head of the Association of the Bouquinistes of Paris, and he sells only books. But he's seen a worrying increase in the sale of keyrings, magnets, and cheap plastic Eiffel towers over the last few years. Je pense que cette quatrième boîte consacrée aux souvenirs à la petite brocante est un, un mal nécessaire. I think this fourth box for free market objects and souvenirs is a necessary evil. Some of my colleagues need that extra revenue, but the problem is those trinkets spilling over into the other three boxes. That continues. We're no longer bouquinistes. We must remain booksellers, people who sell, share, and pass on culture and knowledge through books. Happened for you personally over the last 27 years? Quand j'ai commencé il y a 27 ans, on était tous des libraires et. When I began 27 years ago, we all sold books or old engravings. Today, with new technologies, printers, color photocopiers, these beautiful old engravings are being replaced by prints, mediocre photocopies, or paintings made in China. You'll never see the word reproduction on any of these modern prints, but they are. Des tirages modernes proposés et pourtant. Bouquinist Alain Prouveau runs his stall just opposite Paris City Hall on the right bank. He pockets 20 euros for the posters which he produced himself. I have a color photocopier at home and make them myself, he says. I make posters of May 68, Vogue, Air France. You can't make a living as a bouquinist nowadays. People buy them on internet or in flea markets, not here. And the mayor of Paris doesn't understand. Kouvo says he makes between zero and 200 euros a day, but continues to do this because he likes the freedom to open when he pleases. He's giving a lick of sludgy brown paint to the inside of one of his boxes to make it seem more appealing to tourists. I'm going to fill it with things that sell to passers-by on the riverbanks, he says. It's mainly tourists, so I'm going to sell items for tourists, it's obvious. The closer you get to Saint-Michel and Notre-Dame, the more the tourist trinkets take over the stalls. Paris City Hall carries out regular checks and can withdraw concessions, 
but rows of shut green boxes doesn't give a good image of Paris either. Jérôme Calais decided it was time to act and try to encourage people to return to the original purpose of the stalls by valuing this old tradition a bit more. He launched the process of getting bouquinists on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. Moi, je demande l'inscription au patrimoine culturel immatériel de l'UNESCO parce que je pense que c'est le moment pour essayer de revaloriser notre métier. Notre I'm asking for bouquinists to be on the UNESCO's immaterial cultural heritage list because I think it will bring us more recognition for our profession. If we don't react, I'm afraid we'll get eaten by the sale of souvenirs. And that would be sad because it's a typically Parisian tradition dating back to the 16th century. We're probably the last little Parisian profession still in activity. As I often say, Paris without its bouquinists would be like Venice without its gondolas. It's unimaginable. Since I launched this idea, many colleagues have told me they feel more hopeful and confident about the future. If we respect the Bouquinist Code of Ethics better, it will help us keep the profession going. And that's it for Spotlight on France this week. We're a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Nicolas Doro. If you like what you hear, feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. And if you want more France in your podcast lineup, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platform. Spotlight on France is back next week. <laughs>